Uh, would you please stand in honor of God's word? Today's scripture is from Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. You can follow along with your pew Bible on page 391, or you can be in the screen. Oh, good, there it is. Habakkuk 3, 17, 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor its fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive faith, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I rejoice in the Lord. I will take in the God of my salvation, God. The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Good morning. Ruby Hamilton, a businesswoman in her 50s, was stunned at the loss of her husband of 32 years who died in a car accident. Her anger and disappointment went deeper than a typical expression of grief. She had become a follower of Christ in her late 20s, but her husband hadn't shared her newfound interest in spiritual things. Nonetheless, she had set about praying for him feverishly for all these years, praying unceasingly that he would come to know the Lord. And one day when she was praying, she felt a wave of peace wash over her in that still, small voice, assuring her that her husband would be okay. She had waited eagerly for the day when her husband would surrender his life to Jesus. And now this. Her husband had died in a car accident that very day. Ruby Hamilton stopped living for God. Roger Simmons was hitchhiking his way home. He could never forget the date, May 7th, the day he was discharged from the army after the war. His heavy suitcase was making him tired, and he was anxious to take off that uniform once and for all. Flashing a thumb, trying to get a ride, he lost hope when at last he saw a black, sleek, new Cadillac. To his surprise, the car stopped. The passenger door swung open, and he ran toward the car and tossed in his suitcase before the driver could think about the decision he made. (laughs) Going home for keeps, the man asked. I sure am, replied Roger. Well, you're in luck, the driver said, if you're going to Chicago. Roger said, well, I'm not quite that far. Well, I have business there, said the driver. My name is Hamilton. They chatted for a while, and then Roger, who was a Christian, felt a compulsion to share his faith with the 50-ish, apparently successful businessman. But he kept putting it off until he realized He only had about 30 minutes left before he got home. It was now or never. Mr. Hamilton, I would like to talk to you about something very important, he said. Then he simply told Mr. Hamilton about the gospel and ultimately asked him if he would like to commit his life to Jesus. The Cadillac pulled over to the side of the road. Roger was stunned. He expected that he was about to get thrown out of the car. Instead, the businessman bowed his head on his steering wheel and prayed to receive Christ. Hamilton then thanked Roger. This is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me, he said. Five years went by. Roger married, had a couple of kids, 
and started a business. He was packing a suitcase for a trip to Chicago one day when he found a small white business card in the pocket of his suit that had been given to him by Hamilton five years earlier. In Chicago, he looked up Hamilton Enterprises. The, rece- the receptionist told him that it was impossible to see Mrs. Ham- or Mr. Hamilton, but he could see Mrs. Hamilton. A little confused, he was ushered into a beautiful office where he found himself facing a keen-eyed woman in her 50s. She extended her hand. You knew my husband? Roger told her how Hamilton had picked him up while he was hitchhiking home after the war. Can you tell me what day that was, she asked. May 17th, he said, five years ago, the day I was discharged from the Army. Was there anything special about that day, she asked. He hesitated, not knowing if he should mention how he shared the gospel to her husband. Mrs. Hamilton, I explained the gospel to your husband that day. He pulled over to the side of the road and wept against the steering wheel. He gave his life to Christ that day. When she heard those words, explosive sobs rocked her body. It took quite a few moments before she could get a grip on herself. Ruby sobbed. I had prayed for my husband's salvation for years. I believed God would save him. Where is your husband? Roger asked. He's dead, she replied. He was in a car crash after he let you off out of the car. He never made it home. You see, I thought God had not kept his promise. I stopped living for God five years ago because I thought God had not kept his promise. We live in a world that often does not make sense. Just by living in it, we know that. But we have especially learned that from Ecclesiastes these last few months. The vile effects of sin have corrupted all of creation, every aspect of it. Life under the sun, as the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, is, to put it simply, very hard. The effects of sin have often turned our lives into an endless cycle of sleep, work, eat, play, sleep, work, eat, play, work, turkey, sleep, play, and on it goes. We work to be able to eat and play, but often we eat and play so much that we have to work even more. But we can't work more unless we sleep more. But we can't get enough sleep if we don't get enough to eat, and so on and so on, right? Ah, it's exasperating. On top of that, the entire world often seems to be in continual upheaval. There's war in the Middle East right now, talks of ceasefire every day, but then another bomb goes off. European countries on the brink of economic ruin. Crazy tales of pirates off the east coast of Africa that take prisoners for ransom. It's not back in the 1700s that that just happens. Global warming, overpopulation, billions of the earth's population living in poverty, racism, persecution, global warming, and increasing national debt. Those are just a few of the things that go on right now in the world. The world does not make sense. Life is hard. And thus, the life of faith does not make sense. So what do we do when evil seems to be running wild through the world? When it seems that the wicked are rewarded for their self-serving behavior, and righteous people seemingly are punished as they attempt to pursue holiness? What do we do when the Christian life does not make sense? When we feel like giving up 
And when God doesn't seem to be answering prayers, opening doors, or even to be found, where is he? We have been promised new life in Christ. And we look forward to the realities of that promise. But right now it's hard to tell sometimes who's in charge of this world. What do we do and how do we remain faithful? Well, thankfully, we have the book of Habakkuk. Or Habakkuk, however you want to say that. It is a book that speaks to those concerns and questions. It speaks to people who live in the meantime. We live in the meantime. We live between the cross and between new creation. When some promises have started to become fulfilled, and they will eventually be fulfilled in the future. You know, we, by grace through faith, we are a new creation, but yet we're not fully created. We live in the spirit now, but we battle fleshly desires. We, we live in this conflicting world. We are part of the kingdom of God, but that kingdom has not fully been established yet. The lines of the realm are blurred at times. We live between the revelation of the promise of God and the fulfillment of those promises. Life is hard during that time. This is where the book of Habakkuk is relevant. Habakkuk also lived in the meantime. The time between Israel's redemption, they were saved, they were formed as a people, and the promise coming of the Messiah. He lived in the meantime just like we did. He saw what the world was like, and he got frustrated. He perceived an absence of action by God. And he took those frustrations to God, and thankfully he was changed for the better. So I think Habakkuk's message can help us as we seek to live lives of faithfulness to our God and Savior in these times. But before we continue, let's pray. Father, you are God, and we are not, Lord. And Lord, you have placed us in this time, in this place, right now in history for a reason. Lord, you have made promises, huge promises throughout history that you will be true to your chosen people, that you will fulfill those. Some have been fulfilled, Lord, and some we anxiously await. But Lord, as sinful creatures, it's hard to wait. It's hard to evaluate. It's hard to judge what's going on, to see, to determine, and to know what to do, Lord. Lord, we ask for clarity and guidance, and we thank you for Habakkuk the prophet and Habakkuk the book. We pray that these words, Lord, would help us stand firm in faith, Lord, as we face whatever the world may bring. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. I don't know about you, but every time I read or hear those verses, I am awestruck. I am completely and utterly amazed by that statement of faith. It's, it's almost over the top. I hear those verses and I start to question myself, test myself. Could you say that? You know, what, what if this happened? Would you be able to say that? You know, right now it's, it's easy. 
you know, of course, right here, right now, I trust the Lord in front of all of you. It's easy right now. Life is good right now. But what if everything I hold dear, my hopes, my dreams, what if all that was taken away? Would I still stand in complete trust and faithfulness? But not only that, would I rejoice in the Lord like Habakkuk did? It's not about just standing, but rejoicing in those times. You know, if I'm completely honest, and I think if we're completely honest, we, we don't know. And that's okay. <laughs> but we have to ask ourselves, do I, do I really trust the Lord? Do I really believe that He is who He says He is? That He is a loving, merciful, gracious God? Does He really have my best interest in mind? How do I remain faithful? But we're going to leave those questions for a moment while we look at the text, and we'll come back to those. Just a few points about the book. The uh, the book of Habakkuk, you know, as we've read, just ends with one of the clearest expressions of faith found in the Bible. But it begins, if we look at the beginning, with a very, very frustrated prophet. So why was he frustrated, and how did he go from frustration to rejoicing? That is one of our tasks here this morning. So to be able to understand that, we have to look back a little bit at some of the main promises God has given his people, Israel, over the years so that we can understand Habakkuk's situation a little bit more clearly. And there are quite a few promises. God has made a lot of promises. If God does not fulfill those promises, he's no longer God. Right? He has to fulfill them to be God. He can't lie. So there's a lot at stake for who God is, And who we are as his people. So we're going to look at three main promises real quickly. How they kind of impact the history till we get to where Habakkuk is. And I can shed a little more light on on his frustration and then his rejoicing. So the first promise is actually the first promise God made to Abraham. In Genesis 12, 1 and 3. God promised Abraham that he would make a great nation out of Abraham's descendants. And that he would bring blessing to all the families of the earth through those descendants. Now we see a partial, as we read the Old Testament, we see a partial fulfillment of this promise in the formation of Israel. God forms a people for himself, and his intention is to use them to bring blessing to all the nations of the world. And Israel is a physical descendant, you know, lineage of Abraham. And and so God redeems Israel from Egypt, and then he makes a covenant with them, which is the second main promise that we need to keep in mind. In this covenant at the Mount Sinai, God promises Israel that he will be his chosen, that, sorry, they will be his chosen people if they obey his commands and keep his law. And if they do that, God will dwell in Israel, with Israel in the promised land forever with them. So we have this covenant and we have the land. The third main promise, if we go a little farther in Israel's history, God makes to King David. After Israel gets into the land, things progress, good and bad. Um, They ask for a king. Israel asks for a king. At first they get a not-so-good king, and then they're blessed with King David, who is a man after God's own heart. In 2 Samuel 7, God promises David that someone from his lineage will be God's forever king. And this son of David will also be the son of God. So God is going to establish David's kingdom forever. And 
the Son of God will rule this kingdom. I mean, that's a huge promise. That points to the Messiah, points to Jesus. So with that third promise given and with David, the man after God's own heart, leading Israel, the fulfillment of these promises seemed well in hand at the time. We're living in the land. We have a godly king. We're keeping the covenant. When's the Messiah coming? (laughs) That's the only thing, right? But after David dies, Israel gradually goes from good to bad to really bad to destruction, violence, wickedness, and injustice. Very quickly, we seemingly see an undoing of the three main promises that God made. Since David died, Israel had been looking and waiting for the promised son of David, but as the years passed, the promise had not yet been fulfilled, and they lost a little bit of their faith and a little bit of their their steam to go forward. In addition, they hadn't become the blessing to all the nations that you would think they would be. And there's the promise to Abraham. And then also the leaders of Israel, the kings, the priests, the prophets, had not always done a good job of keeping the people focused on God and on his commandments and on his requirements. They had forgotten what God did for them and who God was. And eventually the majority of Israel had turned their backs on God. And it was hard to tell the difference between God's chosen people and the world. Sounds kind of familiar, right? So this is the situation when Habakkuk finds himself at the end of the line of kings before Israel is going to be taken into exile. We, we have Habakkuk. And he looks at Israel. He knows what God has promised. He knows it hasn't come true. All this wickedness is abounding. Where is God? He is having a difficult time seeing how God's promises are being worked out and fulfilled. And so he voices a complaint to God. Now it's, it's, it's important to point out, he doesn't do this with doubt. He knows God's promises. He believes them. He just it, It's not making sense. You've said this. This is what I see. What's up? What are you doing? I can't see you. I can't see this being fulfilled. So it's from a, a position of faith, a position of questioning, a humble question to God that he does this. And so we see in uh, the first few verses of chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk basically asks, where are you? Where are you, God? What are you doing? The things that you were opposed to are running wild, unchecked. Among your people, your chosen people. Why are you allowing sin to rule the day? Well, God answers Habakkuk in verses 5 through 1 of chapter 1. And his answer is both comforting but a bit confounding. And first of all, he doesn't really answer the complaint directly. God assures the prophet that even though it may seem he is absent, he is he's definitely working. But the nature of God's work seems to fly in the face of his assurance. Because God says, I am acting, and it's about to get worse. You think it's bad now, 
you just wait. I have prepared the most ungodly, rebellious, evil people you have ever seen, and they're going to come take your land from you. So the Babylonians, led by Nebuchadnezzar, are going to come capture, rape, pillage, everything. My chosen people, the land I promised. And that's about to happen. Because Israel has rejected God at this point as their ruler and turned to a life of violence and destruction and greed, God says, okay, that's what you want. I'll give you a ruler who loves those things. You're going to get a ruler, a new king that amplifies all those. Destruction, wickedness, and justice. So judgment is coming soon for Israel. I think when Habakkuk voices his first complaint, I don't think he's expecting that. That, that, that wouldn't satisfy me either. Oh boy, things are about to get worse, and I am using that. So that, that leads to other, other questions, right? God is allowing something to happen that, that most people cry, that, that doesn't make sense. How can God allow those things? But we'll continue here. Habakkuk knows who God is. He's a prophet of God. He knows the word, the Old Testament, the Torah. He knows God is absolutely just, morally pure, the enemy of all evil. But by introducing the Babylonians on the world scene, God seems to move away from this goal from his promises to establish his kingdom in the world. You know, how does this make sense? So Habakkuk pushes back a little bit by asking, basically in uh, the end of chapter 1, basically asking, how is this just, Lord? Why are you doing this? And the second chapter of the book contains God's response to Habakkuk's second pushback or second complaint. And the whole chapter contains that response. We're going to look at a few verses, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2, because those kind of summarize the main thrust from which the rest of the chapter goes. And these verses say, For still the vision, the promise, you could say, awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up if it is not upright with him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. So God's response contains two parts, two, two main parts. First, God assures again Habakkuk that he is at work. You know, the vision awaits. It's coming. The promise is coming. It will come. If it seems slow, you have to wait. I am God. God's plan to restore his creation to the goodness he intended in the Garden of Eden and to bring blessings to all the nations of the earth for the the rule of his son on David's throne. All these things are still in effect. God says, the world is not how I want it. I admit that. It doesn't look like it. But I am working. I am working. God has a definite time when this purpose will be fulfilled. And we can be assured that when it will happen, it will be the perfect time. He knows the time. It says, you know, in the, in the verse, it will not delay. So we don't have control over that time. We have to rest in that promise. But as we wait for those promises to come to fulfillment here in the meantime, in, in this time of this hard time of life, 
we do have control over whether or not we will participate in seeing those promises come to completion. Those promises are still out there, and we can participate in their fulfillment. And that's the second part of the response in verse 4. The instruction is of, of verse 4 is how to live in the meantime. God says, you got to wait. I'm working. But this is how you survive, in verse 4, by faith. The righteous shall live by his faith, to live a life of righteousness. The person who puts the faith of God, their faith in God, places their entire life in God's hands and trusts him to fulfill it, despite all outward and inward circumstances, and despite all personal sin and guilt. And a life of faith is lived by God's power rather than by our own. And therefore, it is ultimately truly life. A life of faith knows not to search, you know, nature's workings or just history lessons for proof of divine activity. A life of faith or the faithful person knows that to interpret those correctly, we need God's word. God's word is the absolute authority, um, commentary, description of what's going on in the world. When we just look at what's in front of our eyes, we are easily deceived. Hebrew 11, 1, Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that. It says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. God has made promises. And now in the book of Habakkuk, he promises that he is still continually working to fulfill his promises. So at the end of chapter 2, Habakkuk is faced with a decision. He has voiced his complaints. He had heard, has heard God's response. Will he put his faith in what he sees in front of him? Or will he remember God's promises and the mighty deeds that God has done on behalf of Israel over the years? So he's faced with that decision. We are faced with that decision as well. So we move on to chapter 3. And as we read chapter 3, we see that Habakkuk chose to remember. He chose to remember God's word rather than what's in front of him. He, rec- he, uh, he sings this song of praise or sort of some people call it a hymn. And it's chapter 3. And so in it, he recounts Israel's exodus from Egypt. They're wandering in the desert. Their entrance into the promised land. And, and in the midst of that, when we get to the end of the book here, it's important to point out that Habakkuk's situation still hasn't changed, right? In the midst of this conversation with God, nothing has gotten better. It's about to get worse. So what he has decided is not based on his circumstances. It's based on God and who God is. The Babylonians are at the borders. They're soon going to come and destroy. And somehow this coming destruction, this captivity is part of God's plan. Somehow taking God's chosen people out of the land he promised them and giving it to somebody else is part of the plan. Somehow all of this will contribute to the promises he made to Abraham, to Israel, to King David. All this chaos, this violence, destruction, injustice, and sin will be used by God to rid his creation of those things. But most importantly, we see how this will lead to the coming of the Messiah. Read those verses again, 17 and 19 of chapter 3. 
Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the folds, and there be no herds in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like deer's. He makes me tread my high places. With these verses, Habakkuk declares that his greatest desire in all the world is that God's providence, his plan of salvation, and the coming of God's promised kingdom ruled by the Messiah, that is his greatest desire in all the world, that that come true. That the earth, in 2.14 of Habakkuk, the earth be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is Habakkuk's desire. How can he say that? He may die here soon. Who knows what's going to happen when the Babylonians come? Habakkuk may die. He may survive and it may not, he may wish he would rather die. How does he say this? You know, the answer, I think, is simple, but yet profound. It is easy, yet it's a, it's a daily struggle. And that is Habakkuk chooses to remember. How do you stand in faith? We remember. How do we fight the good fight, finish the race, and keep the faith? As Paul describes it in Timothy 2, we remember. We remember that God is good. We remember the promises God has made and the promises He has made to fulfill those promises. In that dialogue with Habakkuk, he makes promises to fulfill those other promises. Right? I mean, did you catch that? He's, he's tied himself even more into this relationship. And we remember that God willingly gave the life of his son for us. These verses are an amazing statement of faith because Habakkuk's faith rests on the promises of God and not what he can see in front of him. For Habakkuk, this meant looking back towards the redemption of God's chosen people from Egypt, and then looking forward to the promised coming of the Messiah who will provide the ultimate redemption. For us, that means looking back at the cross where our Messiah redeemed us from bondage and sin, and looking forward to the new creation when our Messiah will be God's forever king, sitting on David's throne, ruling the kingdom of God. And as Revelation 21 says, where God will once again dwell with his people. I think this is the mindset Paul had in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are, seen, are unseen are eternal. Everything that we can see will one day go back to dust before God recreates the world as he intended it in the beginning. 
And if we're only looking at those things that we can see, we are not having that heavenly perspective that we need, the God's view. Under the life here under the sun, if we only view it from under the sun, it's chaos. It's hard. We need a view from above the sun. That's what the preacher told us, I think, in Ecclesiastes. So for Habakkuk, what he couldn't see with his own eyes was more important to him than the fruit of the vine, the yields of the field, the growth of the flock, the herds in the stall, potentially his very life. More important than job promotion, good grades, 401k, happy family, plump, juicy turkey, athletic ability, a long life, a stress-free life. So Habakkuk knows injustice and violence, a foreign invasion and possibly death are in his near future. And he basically says, bring it on. I don't value those things more than I value God and his word. Bring it on. The Lord is his strength, and nothing can ultimately harm him or separate him from the love of God. Again, quoting the Apostle Paul, Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So all that being said, a life of faithfulness to God is not easy. We can quote verses. We can be inspired. It's not easy. We know that. It is a constant, daily, hourly, sometimes minute-by-minute struggle. Some of us can relate to Ruby Hamilton from the story I shared at the beginning. We have prayed and prayed and prayed for numerous years for the salvation of a loved one. We prayed for reconciliation between estranged family members, friends, coworkers. We prayed for deliverance from horrible situations or from that sin we just cannot overcome. We feel injustice at work, at school, even in our own homes. And we wonder, where is God? What is he doing? Or why is he not doing something? I've been praying. I'm, I'm, I'm showing faith. How do we live with that? Again, I think we remember. We remember God is good. As simple and as hard as that is. That's not easy, though. It's a simple statement. This idea of remembering is all over the Old Testament. And it's from God telling Israel. In Deuteronomy 6, it is front and center in the Shema. Starting in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when I sit, um, when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them. They physically put the word of God in a little box and tied it on their forehead. That's how committed some of them were. They literally lived this out. Bind them as a sign on your hands and frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Everywhere you go, remember the Word of God. 
And when the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, when the Lord fulfills that promise, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Remember, don't forget. Do everything you possibly can, God says, to make sure your redemption, what I did for you, is front and center. When I read this, and maybe you're, you're like me, you know, I often marvel. How could Israel forget? How can they forget the Exodus? Ten plagues, river into blood, frogs falling from the sky. How do you forget that? How do you forget that? Crossing the Red Sea. I mean, manna falling from heaven, water from a rock in the desert. How do you forget that? How do we forget the cross and the resurrection? The most important event, not only in our lives, but in the entire universe, the entire history of all creation, the most important event we often forget. We are easily swayed by what we see with our eyes and not what we remember to be true. We have to remember It is simply that hard to remember. How do we do that? So just three quick ways. I mean, these are anything new or all-inclusive, but they're ways that you you see in Scripture and that kind of sum up what we do. And the first we've already seen in Deuteronomy 6, it's the Word of God. That's the, the key way we remember. We saturate ourselves in truth. In Jesus' priestly prayer in John 17, 17, he says, sanctify them in your truth as he prays. He prays to his Father. Sanctify my followers in your truth. Your word, Father, is truth. He says that. You know, we have the benefit here of having the Old Testament and the New Testament, something that most people in the Old Testament didn't have. And people in the New Testament that we read about only have the Old Testament. We have the whole story that God is working out. It doesn't make it necessarily easier that we have that whole story. But we always have to be feeding ourselves truth. The world feeds us lies. Beer commercial tells me, if I drink Bud Light, women are going to fall at my feet and I'm going to have a party. That's what Bud Light tells me. That's a lie. Apple... No, I'm going to stop. You know what I mean. I mean, commercials, TV, radio, the music we listen to. We fill ourselves with lies a lot of time, and we're not able to discern the truth. We have to be feeding ourselves truth. We need it to remember. The second way is, is fellowship, community, the body of Christ. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 is, is pretty clear about that. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised it is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I think that perfectly sums up here. If we're going to hold fast to our confession of faith, we need each other. We can't do it alone. I need somebody to tell me when I'm 
have the wrong thinking, the wrong behavior. If I'm blind to something, I need somebody to tell me that sometimes. We need encouragement and exhortation to remember. And if we don't have fellow rememberers that can rememberers with us, each other, who are trying to remember, if we don't have each other, we will quickly forget. And I think the third thing is prayer. When we pray, we surrender ourselves. When we truly pray to God, we surrender our needs, our dreams, our fears, our desires, our joys. And by doing so, we acknowledge that we don't know and we need help. The world doesn't make sense, and so we bring it to God. We need God's above-the-sun vision, his heavenly vision, to tell us how to sustain life here. So those aren't anything new, but we need to be reminded of those so that we can continually remind and remember. Will we remember? That's the question. I think Habakkuk leaves us. In the midst of our evil world, pain, when enemies confront us, friends and family prove untrue, can we, when facing death or the powers of hell, Nevertheless, join with Habakkuk. Will we remember? Habakkuk makes his amazing statement of faith based on memory, based on God's word, based on God's promises. Without material evidence in front of him of God's providence or love, he only has God's verbal assurance. I am working. Are you going to trust me? He's still is able to declare faith in God. And not only that, whatever comes, bring it on, and I'm going to rejoice in it. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I will remember and rejoice in the Lord.